going to be tonight in the New Testament, as I promised. <clears throat> and we're going to be in James, James chapter 1. So, I did have a little bit of a meltdown this week, but I kind of cheated because I kind of knew what it was. So, you might say it wasn't really a meltdown, but nonetheless. Doing better? And... Uh, We'll just move on from there. So I thought about some different characters from the New Testament that we would talk about tonight. Um, you know, Peter had meltdowns. Paul did. <clears throat> we go back into the Old Testament. Um, Abraham, you know, had meltdowns. Um, David had meltdowns. Uh, Jeremiah had a huge meltdown. He's turned around and seen the city of Jerusalem destroyed. Um, so there's a lot more to choose from, but I decided tonight to kind of go in a different direction. And rather than choose a well-known character, I thought it best to tie all the messages together um, with what I'm calling a theology of meltdowns, okay? So let me explain. As a, as a proper term, theology is divine is, is defined as the study and character of God. But when we use it in a practical sense here, it, it really has the idea of belief. Okay, so everybody has, for example, everybody has the theology of education, okay? So most parents, right, believe in a particular kind of education, maybe a public education, maybe a private education, maybe education from home, okay? Maybe you don't have children. Guess what? You still have a theology of education, Right? There might even be a parent, I don't know who that might be, that doesn't want their child to be educated at all. And they too have a theology of education. It's always there. And I've been doing this for the last couple of weeks, developing a theology of meltdowns. And, and you see, like it or not, you have a theology of meltdowns, I have a theology of meltdowns, and it's all based upon how we respond. It may not be written down on paper, um, you may not have it fully developed, um, but it's there. And it comes to the surface when you react and when you respond. And so during this series, we've been discussing the responses of God to meltdowns. We've been discussing the responses that we're really interested in are how the Bible characters responded. And again, there are many, many other examples that we could do, and um, we just don't have the time to do that. And we could develop a more detailed theology, you might say, but four weeks of meltdowns, like Pastor said, I think we're done uh, with the Meltdown series for now. So what I want to do is this final message is take the many responses, and I want to put them down into three uh, categories. Now, as a disclaimer for this final message, we're going to be focusing on meltdowns that serve to grow us as followers of Christ, okay? Not the meltdowns that are due to our own foolishness, okay? So these are the meltdowns that are meant to grow us, not things that we just foolishly do um, that we're not supposed to do. Um, like eating that last piece of pizza late at night, you knowing that it's going to bother you the next morning and have a, you know, you get the idea. Like we talked about last week, you're going down the interstate at 100 mile an hour and you get stopped by the police and you whine and complain. Well, that was your fault. You knew not to do that, okay? We're going to talk about the ones that are meant to grow us. And so in the book of James, the terms trials, the terms testings, the terms temptation are all kind of words that are used to, de to describe or designate those types of meltdowns. And those types of meltdowns are supposed to grow us and to grow our Christian faith. 
So as we look at the text here in James chapter 1, there are some ways to respond to meltdown, some biblical ways you respond, and then there is one way that you never respond to meltdowns. And so that's kind of how we're going to do it, all right? So the first one here up on the screen is joy. The right response is joy. So we've got three right responses, one wrong response if you're taking notes. So look at the text here, James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, he says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And we'll get to the rest of the, of the text here. Counting it all joy is not the first reaction that you have to a meltdown. I, I don't think it is. I know it's not me. I think we focus too much on the word joy, though, and say, how can we have joy in such a difficult time? And when we hear the word joy, we might picture somebody uh, jumping up and down uh, in excitement, like after a sporting event, um, or maybe after a major milestone in their life. But we have to be careful that we don't confuse joy for happiness, okay? because there are two similar words. So we define joy as the heart attitude regardless of the circumstances. So you can be joyful regardless of what's going on all around. I have joy or rejoice in the hope of my salvation. The world can be falling apart, and sometimes we feel it is, right, around us, but I know that this world is not my home. I have a future in heaven with Jesus. I have joy based upon that. Happiness is different. Because happiness is the heart's attitude based on the circumstances. So there are a lot of things that make me happy. No piping hot bread from the oven that my uh, son likes to make sometimes when I ask him five or six times. And he finally does it for me. Um, a fresh cup of coffee in the morning, freshly ground cup of coffee. Uh, maybe it's a sizable tax return. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, a job promotion, whatever it might be. There are many circumstances that provide us with happiness, okay? So we might look at happiness as focused on the external and joy as focused on the internal, but the point is here that you can be joyfully unhappy, okay? Sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. Because during a meltdown, when everything seems to be going wrong externally, you can still have joy within, joy that's an attitude of your heart. And I like what one author says. He says it this way. He says, joy, in turn, speaks of a state of being rather than emotion. He says, joy provides quite different, is quite different from happiness. So that this verse does not support the idea that a Christian must smile all the time. He says, joy may be defined as a settled contentment in every situation, or, he says, and I love this phrase, it's long, an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. That's a long statement. An unnatural reaction of deep, steadied, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. So in the immediate context of the book of James, the Jewish believers are being persecuted. They're forced to abandon their homes, to relocate to other areas, right? And James says, I know this is not a happy time, but you can still have a joyful attitude in your heart. Now, there's another word, though. You see joy in the text in verse 2, but the other word here is the word count in verse 2, or some of your translations might say consider. And this is a unique word because it has to deal with leadership, 
Um, and this word actually literally means to go first or to lead the way, right? Not a verb you'd think that would be here, but it's a verb of thought. It's a verb of thinking, not a verb of emotion, okay? So when we bring all these phrases together, it sounds something like this. Allow a joyful attitude to be what leads your thinking in a meltdown. Do you get that? Allow a joyful attitude to be what leads your thinking in a meltdown. Because when you're in a meltdown, your thinking is not being led towards a joyful state. Your thinking is being led in every other direction. And so for James to instruct this means that people whom he is writing to are obviously not doing this. Joy was not leading their thinking. They were forgetting that meltdowns have a purpose. They were forgetting that meltdowns were beneficial to us. But joy was not leading their thinking. And so for James, the point is that meltdowns can teach us this patient endurance, okay? But joy has to be what leads you. Now, there are a lot of, there are three responses we're going to talk about tonight. And, I, and it's my prayer that you respond in all three ways. I'll just choose one of them and say, okay, I want this way, and then I'll get rid of the rest of them, okay? It's the intent that you respond in all three ways, okay? But in this context here, the first one that he, 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 um, he notes is this idea of a joyful attitude that leads your thinking in a meltdown. So next time you go into a meltdown, everything else on the outside is, is going crazy and nuts, but you need to let that joy, that settled contentment and thankful trust in God to lead your thinking, as you go through it. And I think we naturally want to do that. And I think sometimes some meltdowns we feel we do better with, right, than others. Some meltdowns we get into and we fall apart. And we're like, man, I thought I was going to do so much better this time. It just falls apart. So allow joy to be what leads your thinking. And I like the way that author says that. A second response uh, from the text is a patient response. This is the bad word, right? Patience. According to the text here in James chapter 1, the rationale for joy during a meltdown comes from the understanding that it has a purpose. But the unfortunate fact sometimes is that the purpose of a meltdown a lot of times is not revealed until we're on the other side of it, right? It's never while we're in the middle of it. It's never before it. And when we reflect back on it, we learn lessons, right? We extract lessons. We apply those lessons to grow our faith. That's the point. But that means, what that means is that we've got to practice this idea of patience. And patience continues to become a lost virtue in many places of our world today, right? It, it, it just is. Um, as we continue to live in a world that's bent on having services and things quickly, Right? Uh, patience is always going to suffer. I mean, most of us get bent out of shape when we got to wait an extra few minutes, right, in the drive-thru to get our fast food, right? Talk about an oxymoron, right, waiting for fast food. I mean, it's just, or, or maybe we're seated at a restaurant, right, and their, their staff is really low. Um, and as a result, service becomes really slow. Oh, they haven't taken my drink order. My drink's all the way down. It's, it's not, you know, now that my daughter's in college, and um, I've realized that in Texas, because for whatever reason, everything seems to be, they all, the Texans like to say everything's better in Texas. And some things I guess you could say that with, but I've realized that she can get things really fast from my friend named Amazon. <laughs> really fast, right? 
So forget this next day delivery stuff in West Virginia or Ohio or Kentucky. Now this next day stuff. I remember the first time I was play, trying to get something to her. And I got on there and was asking me a question. It's like, when do you want it? And I had all these selections. I'm like, wait a minute. It was just supposed to be like next day. It was like saying like, do you want it in an hour, in two hours? Do you want it there in 30 minutes? I was like, what is this? I said, I can get it there even faster. But it's, it's, this, it's this tendency to want things speed up. And, and I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but there's no fast track for meltdowns. Some are quicker than others. Some we wish we could get through faster, right? But if we're to learn from them, James is telling us, we've got to practice this virtue called patience. And now other translations use the word endurance. But you know as well as I do that you can endure through something um, with a really bad attitude, <laughs> right? You can really endure through something with a bad attitude. So um, we get the full meaning when we combine the words together. And we say patient endurance, all right? So when we respond to meltdowns, because we are patiently enduring through them, James says, there's going to be some benefits for us. He says so in verse 3. Responding with patience will strengthen your faith, verse 3. And this idea of patient endurance, sometimes I like to use the word toughness, okay? You're tough in the midst of those meltdowns. Because toughness deals with both the internal side and the external side, right? Toughness deals with sometimes the external side is hard and the internal side is easy. Other times in a meltdown, the internal side might be harder. The external might be, might be easier. One of the most foolish things I remember hearing as a kid, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'm sorry, but that's just bad, bad, bad theology. I mean... That's just bad, bad theology. In my estimation, or my experience, physical bruises heal much faster than mental ones. I mean, whoever thought, it's a great rhyme, it's beautiful, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, don't listen to them, you know. But still, it's just bad, bad theology. But that idea of patience, of practicing. And then he says, secondly, responding with patience will produce maturity. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be living lives that are driving, forward, driving towards this idea of maturity, looking like and living like Jesus. And the, so what he says is that the key to a meltdown is endurance, patient endurance. It's not success. So it's about endurance. It's not about success. So think of it this way. We have this notion that if you don't make it through your meltdown with an A+, right, a 4.0, then you failed miserably. If meltdowns were dependent on A-plus grades, then we'd all have a big fat F, wouldn't we? <laughs> Endurance, not success, is what enables you to grow in your faith. The meltdown itself alone doesn't guarantee maturity. It's the endurance in the meltdown that produces the, the, the maturity. It's, it's going through it, knowing that, yeah, yeah, I might get a good grade in this one. I might get a D plus here, but I'm still going to get through, and I'm going to still learn what I did well to get the good grade, and what I didn't do so well as I got the bad grade. Think of a marathon runner. It's a good illustration of this point. Just about every marathon runner has one particular goal, right? I got to cross the finish line. That's my goal. I got to cross the finish line. It doesn't matter if they're first. It doesn't matter if they're second, their third, 1800th. 
or whatever it might be, or last, just as long as they endure to the end. But the more marathons a runner runs, typically, you hope, right, the better your record will be. And same is true for meltdowns. The more meltdowns, the more opportunity to grow your faith. It doesn't mean that it's going to be this perfect incline of getting better. Because we all know how life is. It's like a roller coaster. And things just catch us off guard. You go through one meltdown, you might have a great average. You go through another one, you're down in the dumps. And it's just like this. And the idea is to climb better. The idea is to get better. The idea is to grow and become more mature. And it all takes patience. And a lot of times we don't want to wait for it because it requires patience. You know, remember the adage, good things come to those who wait. Uh, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, and being patient in the midst of those meltdowns, which is probably the most hardest thing to do. It is. Just to be patient. And sometimes it's just about sitting and listening to what God has to say. Or being silent in the presence of God whatever it might be. And then you're like me, you're like, okay, I've, I've waited long enough. Can we, we're going to do something here? We're going to move forward? Or what else do I need to do, right? It's about patience. A third right response is, and you can, we learned this last week from Hannah, is a prayerful response or a prayer response. So asking God for help during a meltdown ought to be a top priority. Listen to what it says in the text as we continue. <clears throat> Almost said Acts. We're in James. James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we all do, by the way, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So from last week, Hannah tells us, reminds us, that prayer's got to be a top priority. And I think I'm preaching to the choir when I say that tonight, like I did last night or last, last, uh, last Sunday evening. Prayer ought to be a top priority when we get into a meltdown. Yet sometimes it's the one thing we forget to do. But if you're like me, you've got to ask the question, right? Okay, I got it. Prayer is the top priority, okay? So what do I pray for? Right? Am I supposed to just pray and just see what happens? <laughs> is there something specific I'm supposed to pray for? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because James gives us the answer here in the text in verse 5. He says, pray for this simple thing. Just pray for wisdom. He says we must pray for wisdom. He doesn't advise us to pray for deliverance, you know, because we've got to endure through it. He says ask for wisdom. In this context, the wisdom that he's talking about is the wisdom you find in the Old Testament literature. Probably the most familiar would be uh, the book of Proverbs. And the idea here is that wisdom is God's perspective, his viewpoint on the matter. That's what wisdom is. His viewpoint, how he sees it. It's his perspective. Uh, the wisdom of the world might be telling you to find a way out of your meltdown. 
Get out of it. Do whatever you can to get out of it, right? It does. Whereas heavenly wisdom might be telling you to stop. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. What is he telling you to do? If you're a student of the book of James, you know that's developed more in James chapter 3 as that contrast between human wisdom and divine wisdom is there in the book. But, but when we talk about using the right wisdom, you know, think about what lesson might you need to learn to grow closer to Jesus. And by the way, I love this because the text says that if you ask for wisdom, the Bible says you'll get it, period, end of sentence. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to you, it says. God will not scold you. God will not reprimand you for asking for the wisdom. He says he will give it to you. He wants us to ask for it. He wants to give it to us. And, and God is not saying that he will give us more knowledge or a higher IQ. No, no. He's saying he will give us the ability to see the importance of enduring through our meltdowns because that's his perspective. But be careful, though, as the text continues. And I'm just slowly moving down through this text, as you note. you got to ask correctly. So you ask for wisdom. You pray for wisdom. Okay? But it says we must ask correctly. Verse 6 tells us. It says this is the right way to ask for wisdom. And there is a wrong way to ask for wisdom. The right way is with an attitude of faith, as it says here. The wrong way is with an attitude of doubt. And so James kind of explains. He says... You know, one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed around, like this constant swell of the ocean that's, that's moving about. Does such a person who lives and thinks like that thinks he's actually going to receive something from the Lord? No. If he's waving and moving around like that, constantly doubting, of course not, because he's not asking in faith. That man, James says, he's double-minded. He's literally double-souled. That's what the word actually means. He's double-souled. It's as if he just can't make up his mind and there are two souls in his body. Later on in James chapter 4, he talks more about the double-minded man who wants to be friends with the world and friends with God. It's a unique term that only James develops. But the one main character trait of a double-minded person is they are unstable. Okay, They're just unstable. Not just in some of their ways, it says in all of their ways. They're unstable. Now, unstable is the same word that's used in James chapter 3, verse 8 about the tongue, right? When it describes the tongue as unruly, uncontrollable. And we know, we know how unstable our tongues can be, right? We know how unstable this little member is that sits inside of our mouth. We know how unstable, how unruly sometimes, how uncontrollable this little member in our mouth is. You see the point he's trying to make? He's saying all this doubting and double-mindedness, he's saying this is the exact opposite of how we ought to pray. It's the exact opposite of how we ought to pray. We ought not pray like that. He's saying we need to pray differently. We must pray in faith, praying with a single-minded focus in the goodness of God. Because God wants, to see he wants us to see things from his perspective. That's what the text is saying. He wants, to see us, he wants us to see the reason for our mouth. He has the best interests at heart for us. 
And so when we pray in wisdom, he says, make sure you're praying in faith, not doubting. And you're like, how in the world, right, do I do that? Because if you're like me, you're in prayer and you're sitting there praying and your mind goes to think about something else. You're like, I'm not single-minded, focused on God. I'm, my mind's going lots of different places. I never said it was easy. It's, it, it's not. Prayer's work. People have to realize that. I, most Christians realize that prayer is work. It takes work. It takes discipline. You might start a few minutes every day, but it takes work. It takes discipline. Usually you find a time that's best, right, for you to pray, where distractions are, 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 are minimal, right? You've probably figured that out. Or, or with Bible reading, times when distractions are minimal so you can really focus in on what God wants to tell you and what you're trying to learn from the text you're studying. You want to hear him. You want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. But that single-minded focus, and God knows each and every one of us. He knows how difficult sometimes it can be for us to get in those places where we can get quiet and we can talk to him. As the text continues in verses 9 through 11, we're not going to go over these in detail, but they highlight the simple truth that meltdowns can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter. Meltdowns are no respecters of persons. (laughs) James uses the term rich and poor to highlight the extremes, right? The very wealthy and the very poor. And no one is exempted from them. And don't think that because you might be well off according to the world standards that meltdowns are not going to happen to you. That's what the rich man thinks, right? He thinks, I've got too much. I can just easily pay and, you know, fund everything and nothing's gonna, bad's going to happen to me. Nor should you expect constant meltdowns to happen to you if you're having trouble making ends meet. That's the poor man. He constantly thinks, oh, the world is out to tear me up. The world is out. It's just bad. I just, I just have a horrible time with the world because I'm poor. Your worldly status doesn't matter to a meltdown. What matters is your response to the meltdown. It's just a reminder that it can happen to anyone, and it can happen so quickly. And we, sometimes I feel like we just automatically respond to it without even just stopping to take a breath, take a minute, okay. All right, now, what's the right way to respond to this? I don't want to go into a meltdown, right? But what's the right way to respond to this? And then comes verse 12. I like what verse 12 says. Blessed is the man who endures, we could substitute trials, temptations, meltdowns here, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Do you know that that word trials and temptations is the same Greek word, periosmos? It's the same word, trials and temptations. And I'm calling it meltdowns for the sake of our, of our study. It's the same word. In the first 11 verses, James says, this is how you're supposed to respond to a meltdown. This is the key factor that determines if a meltdown is going to be beneficial to you. Do you res- how do you respond to it? Do you respond to it with joy? Do you respond to it in prayer? Do you respond to it with patience? Do you do all three? Because responding to a meltdown the right way allows you to faithfully endure through the meltdown. And when you're successful in this, and it says here in the text, blessed is the man who endures, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. 
which the Lord has promised to those that love him. And this refers to something that's going to happen later on at the judgment seat of Christ when he gives out rewards or crowns for the faithful followers of Christ. But also think that we are rewarded in this life when we endure through meltdowns. We're rewarded with maturity. We're rewarded with patience, right? We're rewarded with wisdom. We're rewarded with faith, with a lot of things. But the first 11 verses remind us how we respond because responding is the key factor. And when we use God's wisdom, we come to understand that a meltdown can actually be viewed as a gift from God. And that gift is designed to produce maturity in our lives. But before he gets there, James takes the other side of the coin in verse 13, 14, and 15. This is the wrong perspective to have in the midst of a meltdown. What happens when we trade in God's perspective of a meltdown for our human incomplete perspective? We, you know, yeah, this is what we do. We blame God. Listen to what it says. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives forth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variance or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the first fruits, or a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. When, what happens? When we respond wrongly, we begin to blame God. This doesn't mean that we're not permitted to ask questions during a meltdown. He wants us to ask questions, right? He wants us to learn. I mean, the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus himself, was the world's best at asking questions, wasn't he? You teach by asking questions. It wasn't about asking questions. It's the finger pointing that James says you don't ever do that. You don't ever finger point. It's the finger point that he warns us against. Don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. The purpose, God allows these meltdowns for good. It's a gift, a benefit for us. But when we respond in the wrong way, what happens? We mar the gift, don't we? We mess it up. We taint the gift. With every meltdown, there's a temptation, right, to blame God for it. And James says, look, there's no way you can even do that. James says it's not possible to blame God for temptations. You can't even tempt him. There's just no way. And understanding that there's no way that James can basically explain this, and so he uses a word in verse 13, cannot be tempted. It's the only time the word ever appears in the New Testament Greek text. And James says this is the word. It's fancy, ready? It's called a hypox legomena. It's a fancy word, right? It's a one-time use of the word. And he doesn't even know how to explain it. So he's got to like almost make up this word to say this is what it means. It says God is not anywhere indirectly or directly related to anything tempting, if anything of any kind, period. How can a morally pure and perfect 
tempt. He, he says he just cannot. There's just no way. And so he uses this word to explain. Don't ever do that. Whose fault is it? Well, that's on you and that's on me. It's our fault. As he goes on, he says, it's your own fleshly natures. It's your own sinful desires. Those desires, they lead to death, he says. You see the contrast? Back in verse 12 in your text, the, right, the one who responds right and endures, he receives life. But the one who responds wrong and blames God, eventually death comes. It's all about growth. And when you respond to a mountain in the right way, you grow in your faith, you become mature. And so when you don't respond, you don't grow at all. And if you keep that process going, you're going to start heading backwards. Like Pastor said this morning about, the Jew, about Hebrews, about going backwards. Don't be deceived, he says. Look at it, verse 16. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You see what he's trying to say here? God is not the author of temptation. He's the author of all things good and all things perfect. Look at verse 17 again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Don't you dare blame God for your failure to respond to a meltdown with joy, with wisdom, with prayer, with the right things. That's on you if you're not responding to it correctly. He says, but don't you dare point the finger at God and say, it's all his fault. He made me do it. It's just like saying the devil made you do it. Right? And usually it's our own fault, our own sinful flesh, our own sinful desires are there. That's on you, he says. Now, decided to put this entire message into one visual for you. So you could see how my brain works. Maybe, maybe not. I'm going to turn around. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to turn around to show you, okay? So this is what it looks like when you talk about meltdowns. This is what it looks like. In the key verse is, is right here, James 1.12, blessed is he who endures, okay? That's the key. You be joyful, patient, you pray for wisdom, okay? Those are good things. When you endure testing, faith, maturity, life comes. When you make the wrong choice, you're complaining, you're impatient, you're blaming God for it, temptation, lust, sin, and death. You see how the text works? You see how he's giving you a simple thing? But it's blessed is he who endures. You got to endure through it. And endurance is achieved by how you respond to it. Because if you respond with joy, then you know that it has a purpose. You're going to say, you know what? I know that I'm in the middle of this meltdown. I'm going to respond with joy. I'm going to get through it. I, I, I know that, that God's in control. I, I, I know these things to be true. I need to remind myself of these things. Things on the outside are going horrible, but I'm going to put a smile on my face as much as I can. you know. <laughs> and I'm going to respond with joy to this. Because I know it has a purpose. It's by how you respond. You respond with patience. Oh, Lord, please, you know I'm not good with patience. You know I'm not good with it. Help me to endure. Help me to be patient through this and learn what you want me to learn. Because I want to grow to be 
a better follower of you. And next time this meltdown comes around, because by the way, you know that meltdowns don't come down just once, come around once, the same one, right? I feel like sometimes there's a sense of humor up in heaven and God's like, well, you didn't get that one right. You didn't get the good enough grade, so let me give you the same one again, just in a different form. Okay, that one doesn't work, so let me give you the same. Okay, you're finally getting it. Okay, you're getting your grade up. Okay, all right, let's go to a different meltdown now. You ever feel that way? It's like the same one? I have a feeling it's because you didn't get the lesson that he wanted you to get in the first place. And maybe the next one needs to come along and do it again. Next one needs to come along and do it again. You know, we discipline our kids for the same thing, right, until they get the point, right? God disciplines us. The book of Hebrews tells us that we're his children. He disciplines us. He cares for us. Endurance is achieved by how you respond. You respond with prayer. Sometimes it's the only place to go in the midst of meltdown. Sometimes that's the only place to go. With Hannah last week, everybody else had bad advice for Hannah. Not godly counsel at all. God had the best counsel through prayer. And Hannah went right to God and she sought the Lord in prayer. It has the idea of a continual prayer with the Lord, a constant, inconstant prayer over it. And you know how it is when you have a meltdown that, that's the meltdown of all meltdowns, you might say. You're in prayer all the time for it, all the time for it, all the time for it, all the time for it. Endurance is achieved by how you respond. So when you respond with joy, when you respond with patience, when you respond with wisdom, when you respond with all three, you endure the meltdown. And enduring makes you tough. It makes you resilient. It makes you grow to become more like Christ, right? And, of course, responding incorrectly can lead you in the wrong direction. This is not rocket science. This is just following what Scripture says. And we know the way that we respond to meltdowns affect our thinking about God. It affects our thinking about others. We can watch how others respond and say, oh, they must not be this. They must not be very good. They must not be growing in their faith. We have the tendency to do that sometimes. That's dangerous. That's really, really dangerous. So it's really simple. I pray that when you go through your next meltdown, that you're going to respond in one of these three ways, maybe all these three ways. But please, please, I beg you, don't go down the path of blaming God. That's just not, that's just not a good path to go down. And a lot of times we're tempted because within every meltdown there's a temptation, right, to blame God. When it gets really bad and it gets really horrible and gut-wrenching, right, and tears are flowing down and you just, hmm, why? And you almost want to say, this is your fault. Just don't blame him. Don't blame him because everything he brings into our life is meant for good. He desires for us to grow. And growth is not easy. That's why we call it growing pains, right? Because there are pains. It hurts, right? To grow. Physically, mentally, emotionally, in the Christian life, it hurts. It's painful to grow. Jesus never said it was going to be easy. He's never said it was going to be easy. Don't blame God when you get down that don't go down that path. He means everything for our good. He means everything for our good. He means everything for our good. We may not see it, 
Sometimes we get an opportunity to see it at the end, but we're never guaranteed we'd ever see why we went through that mountain on this side of heaven or maybe even that side of heaven. (laughs) Don't respond the wrong way. The entire point of this entire series is when you get into a meltdown, when it's happening, take a breath, breathe. If you're Elijah, go get something to eat. You know, don't make, don't, you know, bad decisions are made on empty stomachs. I'm just telling you, that's, that's a little bit of theology too, okay? Bad decisions are made on empty stomachs, okay? But when, just take a breath. Take a breath and say, Lord, I want to respond to this right to respond to it the way you want me to. Be patient. Ask for prayer. Pray for wisdom. Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? How am I supposed to see this? Why is this for my good? How how can this be for my good? How am I supposed to? And then you have this joy that comes. You remember what happened to Hannah last week when she finally released it to the Lord? It says she went up. Her face changed and she ate. She had this settled joy in her heart that she knew that it was in God's hands and that he was going to take care of it. That's the same kind of response that James says that we have. It's just he gives it to us in a theology, in a way that we can take it home point by point. And it can help us when we respond to meltdowns because, sadly, we can't avoid meltdowns. They're coming if they're not already here.